0: Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right. How is everybody doing on this wonderful Friday? Uh, It's, I don't know how it is where you guys are at, but here in uh, Utah, weather is really nice. Starting to get some good spring fever going on. Don't really want to be cooped up in the office or in this studio, but here I am to answer your questions as promised anyway. so. Before we get started, as usual, just want to remind everyone, the answers given in this video do not represent the official opinion of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Book of Mormon Central, or the Come, Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook group. And since they're somewhat off the cuff, they don't even really represent my official opinions. I reserve the right to change my mind. Uh, this uh, For this week, we are doing 2 Nephi uh, 26 through 30, uh, great, great section, Nephi's prophecy interpreting and uh, kind of providing inspired commentary on the words of Isaiah. We're going to get to a little bit of that in just a minute. One of my favorite sections of the whole Book of Mormon, to be completely honest, really, really enjoy uh, what's going on here. Some great stuff. So, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, jump right in. Got lots and lots of questions. As usual, I'm not, uh, I was not able to get to all of them this week, but I do think I was able to get to most of them. So. We're going to learn a lot of uh, fun stuff here, I think. First question uh, from Michael Christensen, in 2 Nephi 26 verses 4 and 9, Nephi uses language strongly reminiscent of Malachi 4, 1 through 2. Is this a case of loose translation, familiar ideas rendered in familiar words, or is there an earlier source that may have informed both Nephi and Malachi? Uh, he also mentions, alternatively, of course, the Lord retains the right to speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. Uh, quoting something from later in this prophecy, actually, 2 Nephi 29, 8. The issue that uh, Michael is picking up on here, is, for those who may not be aware, is that Malachi, the book of Malachi, is written after Lehi leaves Jerusalem. It's dated to about the 4th century B.C. by most scholars, though there's some debate on, on the dating. Um, I can think of at least one source off the top of my head that actually puts it in the sixth century and gets it pretty close to Lehi's time. Uh, Though I hasten to add that is very much outside the mainstream consensus of of the dating. And so uh, I don't know, it's not an issue I've looked into before to see uh, and understand the dating of Malachi. I've generally just assumed it is later uh, because that's what most scholars think. So what's going on here? How is Nephi quoting Malachi? Uh, Yeah, this is a case where either explanation that Michael mentioned is possible. It could be maybe looser translation. Um, certainly the idea expressed in verse 4 that uh, the wicked will be a stubble and they will burn in the last days and stuff. There are other places besides Malachi where you can find that in the Old Testament. And uh, so those are concepts and ideas that certainly could have been expressed on the brass plates or excuse me, uh, well, yes, on the brass plates and ultimately on the gold plates uh, by Nephi and then translated into language that's similar to Malachi's. Uh, That's possible. Uh, The same thing is true in verse nine. Both of these are not lengthy, uh, extensive quotations of of Malachi necessarily. So there's just kind of these passing use of phrases and stuff like that, which suggests to me that it certainly could be a translation issue here. You know, verse nine is basically talking about the appearance of Christ to the Nephites, uh, the righteous Nephites in the new world and, and healing them. Um, And these are ideas Nephi knew by revelation and uh, so there's, uh, it's entirely possible that he could have expressed that in his own words and then when translating it, Joseph Smith or the Lord, whomever is ultimately responsible for that translation language, chose to use and adapt Malachi-esque like language here. That's possible. Uh, There are other places though where Nephi does seem to more extensively quote Malachi and that has led some scholars to think, that uh, there was something Malachi-like on the brass plates, uh, an earlier source potentially that uh, that both Malachi and Nephi are able to use and adapt. In fact, I've seen I, I I can't think of anywhere in print where anybody suggested this, but I know of at least a couple of scholars who have uh, I've heard through word of mouth have proposed that it's Zenos or Zenok is uh, is the prophet that uh, is ultimately the source of this material that both Malachi and Nephi use. Uh, We can't really know for sure, um, however, and uh, like Michael said, it's also entirely possible the Lord just inspired the same words to two different prophets, two different places. Uh, Jerry Grover. I know Jerry. He asked a lot of questions and I'm pretty sure he has answers to them. (laughs) And uh, so now I'm really worried uh, as I read his questions and and try to offer answers, he's probably going to be judging me because he's smarter than I am anyway. But uh, nonetheless, I do have some answers to Jerry's questions. Uh, Jerry Grover asked, why weren't Alma and Samuel, the Lamanite, aware of Nephi's prophecy about destruction and Christ visiting the Nephites? Uh, uh, Samuel heard it from an angel, not Nephi, uh, specifically in relation to uh, 2 Nephi 26.9 is uh, what he's referring to here. Um, I think uh, at, at the very least for Samuel, he's a Lamanite. He probably does not really have a lot of access to Nephite archival records and prophecies and things like that. Um, and so I'm not particularly surprised that he is unaware of, uh, of what Nephi has said. Um, Alma's a little different because he's the one who's in charge of the Nephite records when he's, uh, during his lifetime, um, while he's the high priest and uh, in charge of the church and he's also overseeing the records and stuff like that. So uh, that's a little bit. I'm not sure, I'm less sure on that one. We know that at some point, knowledge of the small plates uh, is lost because Mormon did not know about them until he came to a part, uh, until he was working on his his part of the record about King Benjamin. And uh, I'm assuming that uh, somewhere in King Benjamin's records, he mentioned receiving the small plates from Amalekai. And that uh, with that, uh, with that information, Mormon said, well, hey, I want to look this source up and see what it says. I can relate to that because I experience it all the time when I'm doing research and I'm trying to figure out where something comes from and I'm, I'm reading something and somebody cites a source and I'm like, whoa, I want to find out what that says. And I imagine Mormon is just kind of doing the same thing here. The question is, uh, as far as Alma goes is, um, so we know Mormon did not know about the small plates until he saw them referenced in the large plates uh, during the time of King Benjamin. When did people lose knowledge? When, when were the small plates forgotten basically? That's the question at hand. Uh, we don't really have a definitive answer. Alma we know is basically two generations after uh, King Benjamin, the plates are handed down from Benjamin to Mosiah then from Mosiah to Alma. Uh, is it possible within that time frame that, uh, that awareness of the small plates within the larger Nephite corpus of records uh, was forgotten or kind of lost? Yeah, I think so. Uh, how many of you can think of, you know, are, are well versed in, in family records from just your grandparents generation, for instance, and, and things like that, uh, let alone, you know, national records or go to a library and try to look up stuff that was published In the 1960s and 70s, there's probably a lot you don't know about. Uh, So is it possible that those were already forgotten by then? Yeah, we don't know though. Alma has some, there's some things in the book of Alma that would seem to suggest he had an awareness of the small plates, um, uh, quotations and and things like that. Uh, But it's also possible he gained that information from the large plates. We know that there is some overlap from, uh, with the large plates and the small plates. Um, so I don't think we can assume that just because we see some consistency or something that looks like Alma quoting from the small plates that we know for sure that's coming from the small plates rather than the large plates. Uh, you could potentially argue, uh, that, uh, the things Alma shows awareness of that are common with the small plates are on the large plates and the things he seems unaware of that are on the small plates are, uh, are things that were not on the large plates and that's. You know, that's one possible way to look at it, but I don't know, uh, I, you know, I don't have a definitive answer right now. This is all, you know, it's all pretty speculative. No way to know for sure what's going on, but I, I don't think we should assume that that Alma absolutely knew about what was on the small plates. Um, Okay. Uh, next question, Peter Wiscombe uh, asks in Isaiah eight nineteen, which is quoted in 2 Nephi eighteen nineteen, 19, we are warned against those who have familiar spirits as the word familiar in this context does not mean what it does today in casual conversation, you know, recognizable, well-known, intimate. Uh, it's associated with fortune tellers and mediums. Yet in 2 Nephi 26, 16, the phrase familiar spirit is presented as something positive has there been any scholar, uh, excuse me, has there been any scholarly work clarifying this inconsistent use of the phrase? As a matter of fact, yes, there has. And uh, just for those who uh, may not be familiar, ha, familiar with, uh, with what Peter here is talking about, uh, the phrase familiar spirit in the Old Testament is usually referring to a ghost, right? Um, and it's uh, tied into necromancy uh, conjurers and, and things like that mediums summoning spirits from the dead. Think of, uh, in first Samuel 28 where Saul goes to like, uh, the witch of Endor or something like that and has her conjure the spirit of Samuel. That's the kind of thing that's usually, uh, what they have in mind with familiar spirit. But that's also an interesting example because is the spirit of Samuel, the prophet, uh, there, is he evil, right? Is, is this a, a negative thing, right? Is this bad? One, uh, one point of view to take, this is something that's pointed out by Paul Hoskisson, and uh, I'll give you the reference here in a minute, is that uh, one way to read these texts is that the familiar spirits in and of themselves are not what's bad, it's the use of mediums and conjurers and necromancers that is condemned and is bad. Uh, so if the Lord is going to summon a familiar spirit, right? then that's acceptable, that's okay. And, uh, and so that's one way to look at the, this particular issue um, and uh, understand that it's actually a matter of who has the authority to, um, to, to speak from the dust and to speak with the dead and, and things like that. So that's, like I said, that's one way to look at it and, and interpret this. Uh, the Book of Mormon uh, use here, is a little bit different because it's kind of transforming this notion, uh, the Nephites are going to be as a familiar spirit in that their records are going to speak for them after they are dead, after they are gone, right? And so it's not literally a ghost. This isn't involving necromancy. It's just that we have the records and so it's as if they are a familiar spirit speaking to us uh, from beyond the grave, right? Um, but anyway, to more to your, your question, as far as scholarly resources go, uh, Book of Mormon Central has a no why It's no why number 491. How are the words of the Book of Mormon like one that hath a familiar spirit? An excellent paper by Amanda Colleen Brown in the Book of Mormon Central Archive titled Out of the Dust, an Examination of Necromancy as a Literary Construct in the Book of Mormon uh, that's probably the most thorough I, I was able to find at least, uh, in the short time I had to, to dig into this a little bit. And then, uh, I mentioned Paul Hoskisson. He has a paper, uh, the, uh, it's actually just a short note. It's one page, uh, The Familiar Spirit in the Book of Mormon. It's in, uh, Insights, volume 28, number six, uh, which you can also find in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. Uh, So those are just some resources uh, you can go to check out and maybe learn and and get some perspective on that. Second Nephi 27 uh, is uh, where we're going to be headed now. Um, Israel Gonzalez uh, asked, what is the symbolic book of Isaiah in its own context and what is the real book of Nephi in these chapters? In other words, why does this Pesher make sense for this adaptation? so for those who aren't familiar with the term Pesher that uh, that Israel used, it's a sort of interpretive uh, commentary on scriptures um, usually believed to be inspired. Uh, it's m- most attested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a lot of what are called Pesherim scrolls in the Dead Sea Scrolls where they're interpreting different books of scripture, things like that. Um, it's an ancient interpretive commentary method that some scholars have used to Compare uh, with what Nephi's doing here in these chapters. Um, Other scholars have referred to what Nephi's doing as Midrash, which is also, which is kind of another ancient uh, scriptural interpretation commentary method. Uh, I'm not 100% clear on exactly what the differences are. Uh, Midrash is more associated with uh, the Jewish rabbis of, uh, of, you know, from about 400 AD on and stuff like that. Uh, Both Pesher and Midrash are are primarily attested in things after Nephi, so they're not, um, they shouldn't be taken as exact analogs to what Nephi's doing necessarily, but they're kind of general models or examples of, of ancient interpretive commentary that Nephi has some resonance with. What he's doing is, is related and similar in some ways. Um, uh, But all of that said, uh, for background on this question, um, so we often have read or a lot of people have read first, excuse excuse me, second Nephi 27 as being an expanded form of Isaiah 29, but, uh, but more scholars tend to think of it more as a, either a Pesher or a Midrash, a commentary where Nephi is taking the words from Isaiah 29 and he is expanding on them, adapting them, interpreting them and things like that. And Uh, That is, uh, that is what uh, Israel's alluding to. Uh, We have several resources on this at Book of Mormon Central, uh, Noah number 29. Why does Nephi use Isaiah 29 as part of his own prophecy? Um, And uh, there's also a paper, a longer paper that that is based off of Robert A. Cloward, Isaiah 29 and the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon Central archive. Uh, Basically the, the gist of the idea here is that in Isaiah 29, in the context of Isaiah's prophecy. The book that is sealed is a, a symbolic book. It is, it symbolizes, uh, the Lord's wisdom, uh, being kept from the people of Jerusalem because of their, uh, wickedness and rebelliousness and things like that. Uh, whereas what Nephi does with this book is he is interpreting Isaiah and adapting Isaiah to his own prophecy and, uh, he makes Isaiah's book a real book. And that book would be, of course, the gold plates of the Book of Mormon. And so uh, it's, it's a distinction and, and uh, it can be, uh, you know, something worth exploring. It's not hard when you read Isaiah 29. you got to remember Nephi has had these visions of the, uh, of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. So it's not hard to see how he would read Isaiah 29 and, uh, and, and recognize... This is a lot like what I've seen and want to adapt and flesh out that, uh, flesh out the details on that to, uh, to articulate what he's witnessed will happen in the latter days. Um, so that's how you, you know, you can go to some of those sources to learn a little bit more about that, um, excellent question. Uh, another one from Jerry Grover, uh, second Nephi 27, uh, verses six through eight says that the Lord would bring forth the words of a book and that the book shall be sealed and not delivered up, yet words uh, from the book are delivered uh, later to others. Uh, Isn't that contradictory, he asks. And uh, also, 2 Nephi 27, verse 22 says, the book will be sealed up again and will be hid up. How did that happen? Uh, So, there are a couple of things going on here. And like I said, I know, Jerry, you've probably got your own answer here. Uh, so, uh, don't judge me too harshly if I'm wrong, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on, uh, with the, some very careful distinctions that are being made in 2 Nephi 27 with the book, the words of the book and also sealed and sealed up and things like that. So I think the book we, uh, we should understand when we're reading Isaiah or not Isaiah, when we're reading 2 Nephi 27, we should understand the book is referring to the actual gold plates, It's not referring strictly to the Book of Mormon, but the golden plates, the, the record that is handed to, to Joseph Smith. And these are never delivered up to anyone except Joseph Smith. There are other witnesses which get talked about here and they see the plates, but they never possess them. They never have them. It's never something that's actually in their care, right? Joseph Smith's the only one those are ever delivered up to. So in that sense, the book is sealed. The plates are sealed. In the sense that they, are kept, that, that they are kept from the access of all others besides Joseph Smith. Um, the words of the book, in most instances, refers to the translation. Uh, and there is one case where I think it's not referring to the translation, but just a transcription. And that is where, uh, where it talks about here in 2 Nephi 27, uh, the words of the book being delivered to the learned. And the learned saying... You know, and they're asked, read this, I pray thee, and the learned saying, I cannot read it. Uh, that is of course, widely recognized as referring to the uh, the time Martin Harris took a transcript of the characters from the Book of Mormon to uh, scholars back East and specifically to Charles Anthon and uh, his encounter there where Anthon said, I cannot read a sealed book. Um, Accounts are fuzzy on this and some accounts say that Martin did bring a translation along with the transcription. My own opinion, having read some of the different accounts and some of the arguments about what happened, I do not think a translation was actually brought to Charles Anthon. I think only a transcription was. And so it was the untranslated words of the book in this case that were brought to uh, Charles Anthon and of course he could not read it. And so in that sense, they were sealed from him. He could not decipher or translate those uh, Uh, those words and so they're, they're sealed. It's, the access is, is denied. But then in most of the rest of the cases, the words of the book throughout this chapter seem to refer to the translation that we get uh, through Joseph Smith. Um, And then there is, of course, the sealed portion of the plates themselves, an actual physically sealed off portion of the plates. Access to that is denied to everyone, including Joseph Smith. He never is able to open that and look at it uh, even untranslated and that is the portion that even con- continues to be uh, kept from uh, our access today and it's sealed up and uh, you know, someday we're promised we'll be able to take a look at it. But when we recognize some of those distinctions, I don't think there's a con- contradiction uh, between the idea that the book is sealed and will never be directly delivered up. But the words of the book, the translation that we have in the Book of Mormon itself, that's spreading throughout the world right now and that's, uh, that's of course the purpose of all of this. Uh, anyway, uh, Daryl uh, Glissmeyer uh, says, the me, is uh, asking about the meaning of 2 Nephi 27:11, where it says read by the power of Christ and he says he has some thoughts but he's looking for further insights. So when I read that whole verse, verse 11, I'm honestly, I'm not sure what it's talking about because it's referring to uh, a time when the words of the book will be read from the housetops, right? And uh, I'm not entirely sure. Read from the housetops is obviously an allusion to spreading and declaring the message throughout the world, uh, but I'm not sure what in that context read by the power of Christ necessarily means. But in the broader context of 2 Nephi 29, which as we just talked about, is uh, dealing with uh, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the translation of the Book of Mormon, I think there are some really interesting things going on here. And this, uh, the insights I'm about to share, I, I, I need to uh, be clear, are coming from Don Bradley in his book, The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories. Unfortunately, that is not available online for you to go check out free or anything like that. But if you're interested, if this sounds interesting to you, you can learn more about it in that book. Joseph Smith, we know, uh, he translated using the Urim and or the seer stones, and he would put those in the bottom of a hat and block out the light. And in darkness, according to several people who knew him, we don't have anything directly from Joseph Smith, but uh, Joseph Knight Senior, Emma Smith, Martin Harris, David Whitmer, uh, David Whitmer's little sister, whose name is just escaping me all of a sudden, but uh, she married, um, she married Oliver Cowdery, so she's Oliver Cowdery's wife and David Whitmer's sister. All of these people left behind accounts talking about this translation process and several of these accounts talk about how Joseph Smith would see in the darkness of that hat, he would see words of light or words of fire that would burn bright and He would see these words and that's what he would read off to his scribes. Uh, And this is consistent with Alma 37, 23, which is uh, talking about in the latter days. And it says, quote, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. So, um, you know, that's the idea is the translation is something that's shining forth. These words are shining forth from darkness unto light. And that's how the Book of Mormon is first read by Joseph Smith, the first person to ever read the Book of Mormon, that's how they're reading it. And Don Bradley uh, actually brings up uh, Doctrine and Covenants 11 verses 10 through 11 in connection with this. Uh, This is a revelation given to Hiram and it's given in May 1829. So this is right in the thick of Joseph and Oliver translating the Book of Mormon and this revelation is given by the same method. It's using the Urim and Thummim or seer stone in the hat. That's how this revelation was received. And uh, here's what those verses say. This is Doctrine and Covenants 11 verses 10 and 11. Behold, thou hast a gift, and thou shalt have a gift if thou wilt desire of me in faith with an honest heart, believing in the power of Jesus Christ, or in my power which speaketh unto thee. For behold, it is I that speak, behold, I am the light which shineth in darkness. And, my power, and by my power I give these words unto thee. So when Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon, he is literally doing what it says in 2 Nephi 27, 11. He's reading by the power of Christ. Christ is the light that shines in the darkness to bring the words of the translation forth. Uh, again, that's uh, an insight from Don Bradley's book, The Lost 116 Pages, but I think it's a, a very, a very brilliant insight. Um, and that, to me, sounds like it's what the 2 Nephi 27 uh, verse 11 is talking about. Uh, okay, this question is from uh, Cindy Rhodes. And uh, she asked, in Second Nephi 27, 13, it talks about a few others that will see the gold plates. I'm sure most people think this refers to the eight witnesses, but I'm wondering if we have any records of women being shown the gold plates. Uh, I thought I read maybe in saints that mother Knight uh, was shown the plates by an angel at some point. Uh, yes, we do have records of, uh, of at least one woman seeing the plates um, and it's mother Whitmer actually, Mary Whitmer, uh, who sees the plates. That is indeed talked about in saints, it's a great story. Uh, you can also read about it in a No Why from Book of Mormon Central, Know Why number 455. Uh, what does Mary Whitmer teach us about enduring trials? Um, there were other women who were involved uh, and assisted in the translation process like Emma Smith, uh, Lucy Mack Smith, uh, and, uh, and uh, also Joseph's sister, Catherine Smith. All of them, we have stories about them actually interacting with the plates. They did not, uh, we do not have evidence that they were witnesses in the sense that they got to see them uncovered, but Emma Smith, for instance, she moved the plates around her house. Uh, when Joseph wasn't around and she was cleaning and she just, she'd move the plates covered, wrapped in uh, and uh, she had a chance to feel them and she thumbed the edges and she could tell that they were metallic pages. They made a metallic rustling sound, things like that. And Catherine Smith, similar stories. Uh, We also have sources that uh, of Lucy Max Smith describing the contours and shape of the plates and things like that. So uh, there's evidence to suggest these women, they are not official witnesses who saw the plates, but they had these experiences with the plates that provide us really a a wonderful testimony of the reality of the gold plates and uh, of this latter day work. Like I said, they were also involved in assisting in the translation in various ways. One uh, paper to go look at if you're interested in learning more about this is Amy Easton Flake and Rachel Cope, a multiplicity of witnesses, women and the translation process. And that's in the book, the coming forth of the book of Mormon, a marvelous work and a wonder. Uh, which is available online. Uh, you can you can read it online for free at the Religious Studies Center website at BYU. And oh, another one uh, that I almost forgot to mention: Lucy Harris, actually Martin's wife. Uh, we have accounts from Martin Harris talking about his wife having lifted and hefted and felt the plates back in October of 1827 when she visited. We also have the account from Lucy Max Smith talking about Lucy Harris's visit to the Smith home to determine, uh, you know, she wanted, she initially starts out, she's demanding to see the plates and to, you know, be able to have access to them and things like that. And of course, Joseph doesn't let her have that, but she stays the night at the Smith home and the next morning, she says, according to Lucy Mack Smith, she had a dream where she saw an angel and the angel showed her the gold plates. So that's another, uh, another woman uh, uh, who could be counted as a witness. Amy Easton Flake and Rachel Cope talk about her in their paper. The idea that the few are the eight witnesses uh, is, I think, true but not complete. If that makes sense, uh, I think uh, we actually talked about in uh, Noah Number Fifty Four who are the few who were permitted to see the plates. Joseph Smith, I think, gets this idea that that he needs eight witnesses because of the reference to few here in First Peter three twenty. It talks about a few, specifically eight souls being saved during the flood of Noah and that may be where he gets this idea, well, there's supposed to be a few who will be shown the plates in addition to the three witnesses and so he picks out eight witnesses. We don't have, uh, unlike the three witnesses where we have a revelation identifying who they are and why they're picked and things like that. We do not have that for the eight witnesses so we don't have the same background as to how and why the eight witnesses were picked, but that's, uh, that's a possibility there. But I don't think few needs to be limited to eight. In fact, I think verse 14 of uh, chapter twenty-seven, Second Nephi 27 is important here. Nephi talks about how the Lord will proceed to bring forth the words of the book and in the mouth of as many witnesses as seemeth him good, he will establish his word. So as far as the Lord's concerned, he's going to call and utilize as many witnesses as he wants. And he's, he said that it'll be a few, but he doesn't give a specific number. So I think the Lord has not confined the few witnesses to eight specifically. He did confine the special three witnesses, right? That's a specific number. There will only be three of those witnesses, but the few witnesses can be any number of of people at that point. As many as the Lord seemeth the, as many as seemeth the Lord good, really. Uh, Okay. Michael Christensen. In 2 uh, in Nephi 27, 24, Nephi says, and again it shall come to pass that the Lord, uh, and he quotes uh, Isaiah 29, uh, 13 and 14 to Joseph Smith. And of course we know that Joseph reports uh, a shorter quotation, not the full quotation of 13 and 14, but a shorter quotation from that passage uh, in connection with his first vision. Uh, that's in Joseph Smith History 119. Uh, was the entire passage quoted at that time or did the Lord quote it again more in depth at a later point in his ministry or does it appear in the DNC far, insofar- it, it does not appear is what Michael's saying, it does not appear in the DNC insofar as I can recall or am I reading too much into again? Uh, this is a good question. Um, it's something that's actually come up with some of my friends and uh, we've talked about it. I don't think we have any other instance on record or documented where the Lord uh, directly quoted this passage to Joseph Smith. Um, And so there's, you know, there's good reason right there to maybe think this is referring to the first vision. Uh, Of course, in the accounts of the first vision that we have, we only have the partial quote that, uh, that Michael mentioned in his question. Now, that doesn't mean that more of it wasn't quoted. It's just, you know, our sources available to us only give us that partial quote. As for, again, it could mean another time, and so it could mean there was another time where the Lord quoted this to Joseph Smith, Uh, but it could also just kind of be a a literary device. It could be used to move the narrative forward, uh, things like that. Uh, I don't think we have to strictly interpret it as referring to another time when the Lord speaks to Joseph Smith, but no definitive answer. Maybe there was another time, but we can't document it. I don't know. Second Nephi 29, uh, another question from Jerry Grover. Second Nephi 29 verses 1 through 2 talks about Nephi's seed in the latter days. I thought all the Nephites were killed. Also, Second Nephi 29, 13 says, the Jews will have the words of the lost tribes. How do you think that can happen? Nephite civilization was destroyed. That's true. Uh, but that does not mean all of Nephi's seed, that none of Nephi, I, I, I should say, that does not mean none of Nephi's seed survived. There are many instances we could go back to in the Book of Mormon, uh, well, forward to from 2 Nephi 27 actually, but there are many instances throughout the Book of Mormon that indicate breakages from, break break off groups really, from the the Nephites that suggest uh, some people could have survived. Coming up here, uh, once we get done with the small plates, we'll learn about Mosiah leaving the city of Nephi and going to the land of Zarahemla. He does not bring all the Nephites with him, only those who will listen to him, right? So there are Nephites left behind there and we don't know what happened to them. Uh, Later we get, uh, at the end of Alma and the beginning of Helaman, we get all kinds of movement back and forth between Nephite and Lamanite lands and we have lots of Nephites going by both sea and by land, far into the land northward and never really being heard from again. We don't know what happened to them. So things like that uh, all over the place. Fourth Nephi, we have pretty much no firm details on what's going on for Two hundred years in in fourth Nephi, and during that time period, we're told there's a, there's no manner of ofites, so there's no divisions among the people, and so there's probably a lot of uh, intermixing of of uh, lineages and seeds and things like that going on during that time period. And I'm sure that even Mormon in in, in Moro- Mormon and Moroni's own time, as the Nephite civilization is being destroyed, there's defectors. Right, I can't I don't have the passage off the top of my head, but there is a reference to the Lamanites uh, destroying anyone who would not deny the Christ. Well, you, you've read the accounts, Mormon talks about how wicked his people are. You think there weren't people, Nephite people, willing to deny the Christ to save their lives? Uh, you bet there were. So there's a lot of ways that Nephi's seed could have survived and been intermixed with Laman and Lemuel's seed, um, which is actually in 1 Nephi 12, Nephi mentions a mixture of his seed with the seed of his brethren. So lots of ways they could have survived there. Cordell Smith asks in 2 Nephi 29 11, what are the other books mentioned? And this is uh, kind of related to the second question in, in Jerry's about 2 Nephi 13 and uh, what the, you know, how the Jews will have the words of the lost tribes. In both cases, the answer is, I don't know. These are kind of things that haven't been revealed yet. At present, I am not aware of any other books of scripture, ancient books of scripture. Uh, I mean, we have, the book of Abraham, the book of Moses and things like that. But you know, lost tribes literature, I'm not aware of anything like that that has been revealed to President Nelson or any of uh, the other successors to Joseph Smith. There are lots of other ancient records and books and stuff that have been found in the last 200 years though, and those are great. They, uh, a lot of them help us better understand both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. But as far as uh, the other books of scripture from the lost tribes that Nephi mentions, you know, we don't have those yet and I don't know exactly how those are going to come forth and when and and things like that. All right. Seth Conry, how can we reconcile uh, scriptures that talk about Satan not giving, not having power over our hearts during certain times of the earth's existence, referring specifically to 2 Nephi 30 verse 18. And others like 2 Nephi 2, 11 through 16, which talk about the necessity of opposition an enticement in both ways for us to be able to act. How far does the restriction of Satan's powers go during those times like during the millennium? Or he asks, is this more of a statement of the unwillingness of people at those times like during the millennium to just not listen to uh, or give in to temptations? I don't really have a definitive answer. I don't tend to spend a lot of time speculating about what things are going to be like during the millennium and, and things like that. I'm. I'm kind of uh, more of a let's figure out how to live in this world now, right now kind of guy. And so I don't, I don't know exactly. A couple of thoughts I have is that Satan can entice us, but he only gains power over our hearts if we give our hearts to him, right? We have to make that choice. That's a conscious decision we have to make. And it's usually probably not something we literally decide to do. Okay, Satan, go ahead and have power over my heart. That's not really how it works, but there are choices that we make that let him in, right? Just like there are choices we can make that let Christ in. And uh, when we make those choices that let Satan in and let him have influence over us, now he has power over our hearts, right? And so one possibility is exactly uh, exactly what Seth suggested here, uh, that everyone will be righteous. Or when everyone is righteous, Satan just doesn't have power over anybody's hearts, even though He's there and he's working hard and he's trying to entice people, but uh, everyone's righteous. They're making and keeping their covenants and so he just doesn't have power. Another thought though is that because of human agency, I don't know that we always need to have Satan around to have opposition. I think that uh, we're capable, uh, you know, Satan is trying to entice us towards bad choices, but even without that enticement, we're capable of making those bad choices, right? And he's the counterbalance to the Holy Spirit and the Lord who are trying to entice us and encourage us to make good choices. But we are agents and we can act for ourselves. And with or without enticement towards the good or the bad, we can make choices. And so we don't necessarily need to have him influencing us and enticing us to have opposition in the choices we're making and to even have a difficult time making those choices sometimes a part of this is the fact that I don't think every hard choice we make is trying to decide between good and evil all the time, right? In fact, some of the hardest choices we have to make in this world are often between multiple goods, if you will, two different good options or a a good and a better option. President Oaks has talked about this, right? We're trying to decide between good, better and best. And you don't necessarily need Satan to entice you towards good and better things, sometimes there's an appeal there to those things because they are good and they are better and they're best things, but they may not always be the very best thing that we can be doing. And so, you know, hard choices are usually not between bad all the time. And so, like I said, I don't know that we necessarily need Satan's enticement all the time in order for us to have opposing choices that we have to wrestle with. So that's just two different takes on, on that possibility. Definitely not definitive or speculative. I'm not exactly sure what things will be like in the millennium. And, uh, you know, interesting question though, interesting thing to think about. All right, that is, uh, that's everything. Uh, I apologize if this uh, this is going maybe a little long for you. Like I said, lots of questions, lots of really good ones. I just want to remind everybody, if you uh, enjoy this, want to dig into the scriptures more, be sure to check out Scripture Plus. It is a, an app that you can download onto your uh, Apple or Android device. It, you can get it at the Apple Store, you can get it at Google Play, and it will, you know, it's designed to really enhance your scripture study. It's basically gives you the kind of information I'm trying to provide here right in your pocket, except a lot more of it, and it's reliable and it's documented and it's sourced, so you don't have to wonder if this crazy guy on the internet is actually telling you the truth. So check out Scripture Plus and uh, have a good weekend.